have been going through the book of Revelation, and well, actually until about a month ago, and then we took a hiatus, and we've been going through, um, um, through prophecy. Last week, we began looking at the book of Daniel, and so I want to encourage you to, to turn back to the book of Daniel as we consider the, an introduction to prophecy. So as we get into chapter 4 and beyond in the book of Revelation, that we will set ourselves a proper, um, a proper foundation. Again, just to keep us there, focused on the book of Revelation, I like to keep putting out the outline that we're working through there, and that is that from Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, that we're looking at the things that have been, that's the message to John, the things that are, the message to the churches, and then the things that will be, and that is the message of the future, and that's where we're going to be going with chapter 4 and beyond. And so, we looked um, so far in our introduction to um, prophecy, we looked at the nature of prophecy, and in that we considered the divine nature, the progressive nature, and the systematic nature of prophecy. And then, a couple weeks ago, we began looking at the conveyance of prophecy, and we looked, first of all, at the conveyance of prophecy via the feasts and the covenants. And then last week, like I said, we started looking at it via Daniel. Lord willing, in three weeks from now, um, we will continue this, looking at it via other prophets, via Jesus and via Paul. Next week is um, traditionally called um, Palm Sunday. So I'd like to take a, a little moment and, and consider the, the coming of Christ. And then two weeks from now is, is Resurrection Day. And so we will consider Christ and the resurrection at that as well. And then we'll come back to this um, at that time. So then we'll look at the other prophets via Jesus and then via Paul. Now, last week, if you think that you had a lot of information last week, you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay? Last week, we looked at chapter, um, chapter 2. We looked at the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in his night, in his, in his dream, where he saw this idol, this, this man, this statue that had a head of gold. It had um, a chest and arms of silver. It had a waist and thighs of bronze. It had legs of iron. It had feet that were an iron and clay mixture. And we looked last week at how those, each of those metals and each of those parts represented different segments different empires, world empires that were to come, that were going to be one after each other. And then we saw that in conjunction with Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel had a night vision of the four beasts, if you remember that. And the first beast was the, the lion with the wings, okay? And so we're going to go through this real quick. So first we saw the Babylonian Empire. Secondly, we saw the Medo-Persia Empire, which was the silver um, chest and the arms, and then we had the, in Daniel chapter 7, you had the bear with the three ribs, and it was stood up on one side, if you remember that, and then we had the third one, which was the Greek empire, and so that was the bronze, that was um, the thighs that moved quickly, it was represented by the leopard with the four wings and the four heads, and we're going to come back to Greece today, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about Greek, uh, the Greek empire today. And then we saw the Roman Empire, which was the, the legs of iron, and how it was a, uh, compared to a beast that had no other comparison. It was just a, a terrible beast, and it had ten horns. And then from within the ten horns, there was going to sprout another that was going to supplant three. And that also looked at the future Roman Empire, if you would, revived Roman Empire. And that was represented by the, the feet with the iron and clay mixture um, and with the ten toes. The ten toes represented ten kings which are also the ten horns that were on the beast. And then we're told that in that time, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, that end time king um, a little bit later on today. Um, 
a lot of information to present, a lot of information. And so, um, today we want to come back and we want to talk about this Greek Empire a little bit more. Now, last week I had a question by my favorite student, that's my wife, and, um, who asked me, she says, listen, you know, there's all these prophecies that are being given. She says, but if I lived back then, how would I know that these prophecies are true? I mean, there are years to come from now. How would I know that this is really godly prophecy? My response to her was that in conjunction with these end-time prophecies, these future prophecies, almost always God allows them to have local prophecies as well. Prophecies that would be fulfilled in a, in a short time. And that would confirm that would confirm the prophet. And so therefore, if the prophet was confirmed by some of these localized prophecies, if you would, then you would know what? That it was true, and you should give a whole lot more credence now to these further on prophecies, okay? I was excited this week on Tuesday when I was in the car. I happened to go in the car at the right time, and I heard uh, J. Vern McGee, um, and, uh, and before the introduction, as they do the introduction for uh, Dr. McGee, they said, and Dr. McGee's going to answer the question we've had come in about how do we know that these, these prophecies are true? And I said, got on the phone to Marsh, and I said, hey, get on the radio. It says, J. Vernon McGee's going to give his answer. And you know what he said? He says the exact same thing. He said, whenever God gives these prophecies, he always gives localized prophecies to confirm the prophet. And I said, yes, I got one right with J. Vernon McGee. Anyways, <laughs> and so, and we're going to see that today. And we see that, as uh, hopefully you saw that again last week. And I want to just encourage you that a lot of what we're going to share today has already been. It's not end time prophecy. It already has been. But, but the end time prophecy that we're going to share today is given right in conjunction with the localized prophecy, which wasn't localized to them at that time, but we see it already as history. So even though to them it was future to us, it's history, and so therefore it confirms what is still yet to be future to us. Does that make sense? Because there are certain things that haven't been fulfilled yet. But we know the intricate detail, you're going to see this in a moment, that God spoke through Daniel regarding the kingdom of Greece, the empire, the Greek empire. Phenomenal detail, as we're going to see. So turn to chapter 11. And we are going to look through a couple hundred years of Greek empire here. And again, like I said, if you thought there was a lot of information last week, you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay? And so, I praise God that God had me use this overhead thing as we go into this, because we're really going to use this today with maps and arrows and, and whirly gigs and everything else. So, in chapter 11, we are going to go through chapter 11 right now, and uh, we're going to discuss the... Uh, the, the empire of Greece, okay? So, beginning in verse 1, it says, Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, this we're jumping in the middle of um, what began in chapter 10. Um, Daniel has been praying, he's been seeking understanding, and God has sent a messenger to him. And so this is the messenger that's speaking, okay, in the midst of that. So the messenger saying, listen, uh, you know, I've been doing these kind of things. He says, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, Three more kings will rise in Persia. That's Medo-Persia, right? And the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now, remember what I told you last week, that um, 
that when Daniel was first getting the prophecies, when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And, and so when, when, you know, there was Medo-Persia, and then there was Greece, I mean, this stuff was unknown. And then Daniel has the night vision, and we're told that it's going to be Medo-Persia, and then it's going to be Greece. It was just nuts. Greece wasn't even a blip on the map at the time. Okay? And so here we're told that Medo-Persia, that this, the fourth king is going to start pushing against the realm of Greece, which again, at this moment, is nothing. Philip hasn't coagulated all these tribes together yet to even be called a Greek empire. Okay? And so before it ever happens, he says, this is what's going to happen. This, so they're going to be pushing up against them. Okay? Now, so he's going to push up against them, and then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Now, we know that that mighty king was Alexander. And Alexander is represented by the leopard, if you would, and by the thighs of bronze. Alexander, almost as it says in chapter 7, or, I mean, as chapter 8, talking about the goat which flew across the, 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 the nations to attack the ram. Alexander accomplished, I think it was in three years, um, world dominance. It was a phenomenal thing. He was a young man, and, um, and he just led the, the, the troops, and, and he broke the back of Medo-Persia in such a phenomenal way. And you can see um, how far extending the empire became with, with the Greek empire. Okay? But we're told in verse 4, And when he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of the heavens but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others beside these. And so, you can see, now on this one, you have the, the Greek Empire, and we're told here in this verse, that when Alexander died, that it, it wasn't going to be given to his sons, but not to his posterity. Rather, his kingdom was going to be divided up amongst four others, and it was divided among his four generals. First, we have Cassander, there in the top left. Cassander took what was uh, Thrace, or properly Greece. It was going to be uh, Lysicomus, okay, which was Thrace proper. There was going to be Seleucus, the Seleucid Empire, which was the Syrian Empire, but it was going to be by Seleucus I. And then finally, Ptolemy I, and Ptolemy was going to be based down in, in Egypt. Okay. Right now, we are going to be focusing primarily on um, the Ptolemy the Ptolemaic Empire and the, and the Seleucid Empire, in the very beginning, we're told here, verse 5, I'm jumping ahead of myself, verse 5, let's read this in context, it says, Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion, his dominion shall be a great dominion. And so in the very beginning, Ptolemy, actually, Ptolemy I, actually had great, um, greater power, and he actually gave Seleucus some of the power that he, Seleucus had up in the Syrian Empire. Amazing thing, okay? So he's initially stronger, and so then Seleucus then becomes um, strong as well. Now, what we're going to see in verse 6, that there's this um, alliance that's going to begin. It says, And at the end of some years, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south, that's Berenice, uh, Berenice, shall go to the king of the north, that's to, to Seleucus, to Antiochus, Antiochus II, Theos, and it says, to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. Now I said, wow, what's all that about? Well, what happens is Ptolemy, 
he gives some power up to Seleucid, and then uh, later on, Ptolemy II, um, you know, there's, there's battles and struggles going on, and Ptolemy II decides that he wants to shore up his power. Well, back in those days, one of the greatest ways that you could shore up power and position is by an alliance through marriage. Do you remember when um, the kings of Judah would give their sons and daughters to the, to the kings of Israel, and they would shore up? And so, Athaliah, does that sound familiar to anybody? Anybody know who Athaliah was? Athaliah was the only queen of Judah. Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And Jehoshaphat, the godly king of Judah, gave his son in marriage to the daughter of Jezebel. Figure that one out. And so then the, the son died, and she turned around and killed off everybody else so that she could have the throne. And so Athaliah reigned in Judah for a period of time, and that was when um, Joash was hidden as a baby and, and risen up for seven years and took it. Anyways, took it, that's another story. So anyways, but it was common back at those times that they would try to make this alliance. And so Ptolemy II gave uh, Berenice, Bernice, okay, but in the Greek it would be Berenice, so he gave Berenike to Antiochus, the Theos, Antiochus the Theos as an alliance. But what happens now is that um, Ptolemy II died. Okay? So Ptolemy II dies. And so in, in order to make this alliance, Ptolemy II made Antiochus II give up his previous wife. That was Laodice, uh, Laodicea. Remember when we talked about when we went to Laodicea that was named after a, a previous queen, Laodicea? Anyways, she was the wife of Antiochus II, Theos. And so Antiochus II, Theos, put her aside in order to have Berenike as his wife. Well, when, Anti when Ptolemy II dies, what do you think Antiochus II, Theos, does with Berenike? He puts her aside and takes back Leonike, uh, Le Leodike back to himself. And so, well, we got a problem happening here because Ptolemy III, who happens to be Berenike's brother, doesn't take kindly to the fact that his sister's now being put off, right? And so in the next verses we read, verse 7, but from a branch of her roots, one shall rise in his place, that is, the, the king of the south, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt, with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more, than, more years than the king of the north. Okay, and so Ptolemy II dies, Ptolemy III becomes the power, he comes and he, and he, and he crashes up against um, the Seleucid Empire, against Antiochus II Theos. Does anybody know what Theos means? God. Do you know why his name was Antiochus II Theos? Because he thought he was God. He declared himself to be God. Anyways, but he found out he was mortal at this moment. And, um, and so Ptolemy II came and uh, avenges Berenike's um, being put away. And he takes back the spoils to Egypt. Okay, so that's 7 and 8. Let's look at verse 9. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Well, what happens after Antiochus II? Um, well, there raises up a, a new king, and he names himself, instead of naming himself after Antiochus, he names himself off after the original uh, father, Seleucid, and so Seleucid Callinicus um, rises to power, and Seleucid Callinicus comes down against the Ptolemies, but he fails. He fails in his, his attempt to be able to gain surgence over the Ptolemies, but he then dies, but in his place comes Seleucid um, Caranus, and then Antiochus III 
the great, okay? And so his sons then, Seleucid Karenis and Antiochus III the Great, they succeed. So they continue on the battle. So, so understand as we go through this prophecy, every time you see this king, this king, the king refers to a kingdom for both things. And so we're, we're rapidly going through the ascensions of all these different kings, okay? And so we see then in verse 9 and 10 that this would happen, that the sons would come and the sons would actually conquer and they would have success. And in fact, they did, okay? Then we continue on into verse 11, and it says, And the king of the south shall be moved with rage, and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a greater multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will be cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and he shall certainly come at the end of some years with a greater army and much equipment. Now, in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. Now, what do we see happen here? Well, Ptolemy III dies. Ptolemy IV comes into power. Okay? He's seeking to regain um, the, 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 the Syrian territory, so he attacks to the north. Right? Well, Antiochus III, he says, no, there's nothing doing. That's not going to happen. So he comes back with a bigger with a bigger multitude, and he attacks the south back. And so you've got these battles going on. Now, during the same time, I don't know if you, if, we, if you caught it, but Daniel was told that some of your people are going to join in. What I haven't shared this whole time, but that you've probably been looking at, and maybe not got it, where's the primary battleground? <laughs> Israel. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, so you got the Syrian Empire up here, you got the Egyptian Empire down here. Now, understand they're all Greeks, okay? But we've split them apart now. Now you got the Seleucids, you got the Ptolemies, okay? You've got the Syrian Empire, you got the Greek Empire, but they're all originally the Greek Empire. So this all has to do with the Greek Empire. So don't miss out on that, right? And in the middle, you got Israel. You got the glorious land. You got the the chosen people. And so somewhere along the line, as Israel usually does, they they try to what? Two sides. You know, whose side they're going to be on, because clearly they're getting beat up by whoever's the, 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 the stronger one, whoever side they're not on. And so at this point, they decide to join forces with the king of the north and come against the, the king of the south. Okay? And so that's what's going on. So now we jump to verse 15. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his will, and no one shall be able to stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. Now, what's going to go on here? Well, Antiochus III, he's still reigning, okay? So he comes, and he puts a campaign upon the king of the south, as we've been talking about. He's coming down, and he's going to fight against the king of the south. In order to shore up his power now, he seeks to do what Ptolemy II did. Remember when Ptolemy II gave his daughter Berenike to, um, to, the, to the north, right? Well, Antiochus III is going to do the same thing, and he's going to give his daughter Cleopatra I. This is not the Cleopatra with Mark Antony, but this is her namesake. This is fun stuff. I, I find history is a fun thing. But Cleopatra originally was a Seleucid, okay? 
And so she was from the, the Assyrian, the Assyrian Empire. And so Antiochus III gives her to, um, to the south, to Ptolemy V, Epiphanes, um, as an alliance. But what happens is Cleopatra, though she was trained by her father in all these devious political things, she decides to be devious by herself, and she changes stripes. She says, fine, you're going to hand me over to Ptolemy V? I like him better than I like you anyway. And so, when Antiochus III gave Cleopatra, he thought that Cleopatra would be able to go down there and turn Ptolemy V's heart so that they would soften them and that the Syrian Empire would be able to regain the whole thing. So all this would become that, that kind of a, a reddish color rather than having part of it be green, right? It didn't happen that way. Rather, when Cleopatra went down there, Cleopatra decided that she liked Ptolemy a whole lot better than she liked her dad, and so she became um, hands-on in, in, that, in that empire. Okay? And so that's the, the daughter that goes down there that we read about there, the daughter of woman. Okay? And in verse 18, we read that, After this he shall turn his face to the coastlands, and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against him to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Well, Antiochus III then decides, instead of going against the Ptolemy Empire, I'll go against the coastland. Now, this is an interesting statement here, because what's beginning to happen now is the Roman Empire, at this time, is becoming strong. This is the time frame where the Roman Empire is beginning to exert itself. It's beginning to push across and become bigger. We've got um, Tiberius Caesar, um, Julius Caesar coming into this time frame, okay, uh, Caesar Augustus come, starting to come up into these time frames as well, okay, and so as time goes on, you're going to have further Cleopatras, and then Cleop the Cleopatra, who's going to be down there in Egypt, she's going to have relationships with Julius Caesar, she's going to have a relationship with Mark Antony, and all this stuff's going to be intertwined together. But here at this point, Rome is starting to the, the, to rise, and they're starting to bring ships to the, to the coastland, and so Antiochus decides, well, I can't mess around with Ptolemy right now, my daughter's down there, this doesn't work the way I want it to work, so I'll start going after the Romans. Well, the problem is that he goes against the, 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 the Roman forces, but he was repelled. He lost there too. So he went back home. He decided, I'll, I'll come back home, and I'll try to shore things up at home, but what happens when he goes back home? He dies. And so Antiochus III is gone. Now, after Antiochus III passes away, he's replaced by Seleucus um, Philopater. And, after, and Seleucus Philopater only um, reigned for a short period of time. He was known as the tax king. He tried to tax everybody. And right after him arose Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, we're going to read about this in a moment, was not a well-loved emperor. He called himself Epiphanes, which means the illustrious. But the people referred to him as Amenines, which means the insane. And so he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. They called him Antiochus Amenines. And so, anyways, and so here we read, beginning of verse 20, There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes, and that's Seleucus Philopater, on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And in his place shall arise a vile person, that's Antiochus IV Epiphanes, to whom they will, not, they will not give honor of the royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. 
With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Now, we're going to start moving toward um, a time um, to verse 35 where we're going to be talking a lot about this Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Antiochus IV Epiphanes is seen to be a type of Antichrist who is to come. I have some tea. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. Um, and so, so as we begin to read about Antiochus IV, that you'll note that a lot of the things that are going to be stated about him, the things that he, he will have done um, to the land, is going to be things that we're going to see um, what is commonly referred to as the Antichrist, or the king of the future, will do as well to the glorious land. Okay? And so we want to begin reading here. Make sure where I'm at. Yep, Epiphanes attacks the south and uses deceptive uh, diplomacy. So let's pick it up. And it says, I'm going to start reading verse 22. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers, he shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His armies shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both of these kings, king of the north, king of the south, hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies, deceptive diplomacy, at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. And so you can see, we have that um, he's going to come, Antiochus, uh, the fourth epiphany, is going to come to the south, He's going, to, he's going to ravish the land, and then he's going to come back, and on his way back, he's going to stop by Jerusalem, and his heart's going to be moved against the Holy Covenant. And it says, and so he shall do damage. And so on his way back through, he, um, he begins to, to take out some more aggressions on Jerusalem. Now this is just a beginning of his, of his, of his aggressions. Okay, So let's continue on in verse 29. It says, at the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifice in place where the abomination of desolation. Now, what happens? Well, here we got Epiphanes, he's going to attack again, but he's going to be rebuffed by the Romans. He's going to come back to Jerusalem, he's going to take it out against the Holy Temple. And so, those ships that come from Cyprus, or the ships from the sea, is really what it says, and those are the Romans. Okay? At this point, the Romans, the Ptolemies, the Ptolemies, the Ptolemaic Empire, is starting to make some um, di diplomatic relationships with Rome. And so, Rome's coming in to defend the Ptolemies. Okay? And so as Antiochus um, Epiphanes goes down, Rome comes and says, ah, no way. We're on their side. And so they come, they rebuff it. And so he goes back down, goes back to Jerusalem. He takes it out against Jerusalem. He deceives himself as, as God, as, as a deity. And so he says, well, here's the temple of God. It'll become mine. Okay? And so he goes in, and you can see 
I wrote down what he, what he did. He took away the daily sacrifices. We know, historically, he offered up swine on the altar, which was a total defilement, if you understand the Jewish law. A pig is unclean. So he offered unclean animals on the altar, and then he set up an idol of Zeus in the temple as well. And so he totally defiled. And that's the abomination of desolation that was set up, was this idol of Zeus that was set up there. And so um, Antiochus um, totally um, destroyed, if you would, defiled the temple that was there. In verse 32, we continue on. It says, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be what? Shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those are the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword in flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many, sh but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So what happens? Well, we read about the Maccabean Revolt. At this time, um, the, the believers, the true believers of, of Israel, those who are the faithful, say enough's enough, and I say the faithful, but those who are Jewish, um, who are to the, to the law, to the covenant, they say enough's enough, and they're led by Judas Maccabeus, and, and say that they have this revolt against, um, against the, um, the Greek Empire, against the, the Syrian Empire, if you would. And we're told, though, here, that it'll be until the time of the end, because it is for an appointed time. At this point, here in verse 35, we begin to see a transition prophetically from a localized prophecy to an end time prophecy. We're told that at this point now, that at this point there's going to become this, this thing that's going to go on now, these struggles, until the time of the end. In other words, I'm not going to continue on, he says, with everything else that's going to go on now, just understand that now this struggle between this Gentile empire and my people will continue on until the end. Jesus refers to this time as the, the time of the Gentiles. Okay? And so you just got to kind of, we'll, we'll get there as we bring in Jesus' teachings in, in uh, Matthew and Luke and as we get into the book of Revelation. Okay? But here we're told that that's going to go on to the time of the end. If you would, flip over to verse 9 of chapter 12. Because to keep this in context, we're going to see this in a moment back as we come through to it. And it says, and this messenger speaking to Daniel says, And go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Okay? So the same phrase is used, the time of the end, to refer to the end times. Okay? So when I read this, now there's a lot of debate of what's going to happen here from this point on, okay? Of whether this is still talking about Antiochus IV, whether it's talking about another ruler, who it's talking about. I believe very clearly that what is being stated here is that the etc. clause is now going on. And that is that now from this point on, there's going to be this struggle that's going to go on from these kings and God's people that are just going to happen on. Until when? Until the time of the end. Why? Because it's what? It's an appointed time. Okay? Because it's still for the appointed time. In other words, there's still a time that has been decreed ahead that the rest of this will be played out. Okay? And I hope you noted that 
that it happened two or three times in that word. It's about the appointed time. It's been appointed. It's been appointed. Who is it? A, who has the appointment book? God. That's exactly right. Okay. God is. I mean, this is phenomenal stuff. When when when. I hope you're over, overwhelmed. A lot of this may have been boring to you, but I hope that you were overwhelmed by the the detail in which God gave to Daniel about what was going to happen in the future Greek Empire. Now, before we move on to the future side of this, the weight of the intricate detail and how it played out exactly how God declared through Daniel gives credence to the rest of this that it will happen exactly how God says it will happen. Does that make sense? And so as we go through the rest of this, I mean, you know, I was talking, it was Jeremy, um, just on Friday night, how we're talking about, you know, even the, the stuff that we looked at last week, if that stuff was true and, and it played out as it was, you know, you'd have to have your eyes open up and say, at that time, wow, you know, the rest of everything that Daniel spoke, I mean, I need to know this stuff. Well, we as believers today, we ought to say what? Wow, I ought to know the rest of what Daniel said. I ought to know what the rest of Zechariah and the rest of Hosea and the rest of all these other ones. And so I want to encourage you. This is a smattering. We're flying through this stuff. Take some time to, to, to spend time in the Word. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. Many people don't take the time to spend time in the Word so they can rightly divide it. And I'm going to encourage you to do that. Now, I believe that in this point then, we are beginning to, to, to move into um, a new phase of this, and we're going to be starting to see the end time king, okay, here in verse 36. And I say that because of what we just said in verse 35, that, that was going to go on to the time of the end. And so now we have verse 36, Then the king shall do according to his own will, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper in the wrath, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of woman, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and shall cause them to rule over many, and divide the land for gain. Now, what are we told about the exploits of this end-time king? First of all, we're told that he shall do according to his own will. He shall do according to his own will. In other words, he will be powerful enough, in, okay, not like these Greek king, kings, okay, this is important to think about. I've just said that the Roman Empire was starting to what? To, to, to increase, okay? Was Antiochus able to, to exert his will upon the south? Not at all. He was rebuffed, okay? And so, clearly, it cannot be a localized king at this point because the kings of Greece have lost their power, okay? They're, 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 they hang around for a couple more generations, but not, I mean, they just become puppets. They become more and more puppets to the point where we read that when Jesus was born, we read about... It was in the days of when? When Quirinius was the governor of Syria, or if you would, the Seleucid Empire. Okay? And so Cyrenius, at that point, was, was in that area. And so, those empires, the Seleucid Empire and the, and the Ptolemaic Empire, begin to wane. Okay? 
And so, clearly this king, this end time king that we read about in verse 36, is able to do whatever he wants to do. He has that kind of power. He's willing that kind of power. Secondly, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. What does that mean? What does he see himself as? God. That's exactly right. He, he holds in disdain. Now, there's two sides to this, okay? Either A, he holds in disdain all the religions of the world. Or, he deifies himself. Okay? I opt for the side of semi-deifying himself, as placing himself above the gods, okay? But, he exalts and magnifies himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods. What does that mean? Again, the disdain toward the true God, right? He's going to prosper until, and I put in quote, the wrath has been accomplished. What's the wrath? I believe it's the wrath of God. Now, we're not there yet, but I believe when we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to see that this end-time king, this end-time ruler, is going to have power from the beast, and he's going to be reigning during the three and a half years that God's wrath is to be poured out upon the earth. And that he will give the, be having the privilege of reigning on the earth while God pours out his wrath. And I believe, honestly, that he's part of God's wrath. I, you know, Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, we're told about the wrath of God being poured out upon men. And does anybody know from Romans chapter 1, how does God pour out his wrath upon men? What does he say that he does? He gives them up. He gives them up. He removes his presence and says, you guys do it on your own. God's wrath is taking away his grace and saying, here, let me help you out. God says, fine, you want to do it, you do it. Isn't that something? I mean, God can send lightning bolts and judge us, but God doesn't need to do that. God just lets us do it ourselves. And by ourselves, we'll mess ourselves up. And so we're told in Romans chapter 1 that God hands us over to our own lasciviousness, and when he does that, we're destroyed. Well, the earth, because they're turning away from God, are going to turn to who? A false messiah, Right? And so, they're going to deify, if you would, this false messiah. And what's this false messiah going to do? He's going to destroy them. So, there's going to be the, the wrath of God being poured out, you know, as we look at the bulls of God's wrath coming forth. But, a lot of this stuff is probably going to be, wind up being just judgments coming from this guy himself. You know, he's going to be his own idiot, if you would. So, we're told that he shall regard neither the God of his father, nor the desire of women. Now, understand that there's a capital G here on my screen because it's a capital G in the New King James, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a capital G in the Hebrew. Okay? An interpreter put a capital G there. Okay? So, get rid of the capital G and put a small g there. We don't know which one this is. Okay? He shall regard neither the God of his fathers. Now, I don't know who the God of his fathers may be. This could be um, saying that he's somebody who was of a Judeo-Christian descent, but it could mean that it's just, he just doesn't follow any gods. Okay? The gods of his fathers, nor the desire of women. Now, some people have really struggled over that. What does it mean, the desire of women? Is he a homosexual? Is he a celibate? Um, what is it? Is it maybe that he's, a, he's not a he, but a, a she? Um, I don't know. Clearly, the, the, the masculine is being used the whole long way here. So, I, I opt for the fact that it will be, be a man. But, there is a potential. Um, as there was in all these other kingdoms, that the ruler of the kingdom is actually a, a female. Cleopatra actually reigned down in the Ptolemaic Empire for a period of time. And so, um, it says that 
Um, he shall not regard the God his fathers, nor desire a woman, nor any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. He, he deems himself, himself as what? Better than, than anything else. Okay? Finally, he shall honor a God of fortresses, even a God which his fathers did not know. Now, this is really interesting when you start to try to analyze what does it mean, a God of fortresses. Well, what's a fortress? A stronghold. Okay, how? For what? Keeps others out. But if you picture a fort, it's defensive, but it's defensive for what purpose? For war. It's, it's, I mean, it's not, just a, it's not just a wall, but a fortress has in its mind a, um, a battle, uh, a defense uh, that there's going to be a war. And so he shall honor a god of fortresses. I think that there's going to be, um, this individual is going to give great credence to a military prowess, okay, is really what I think, and a defense system um, in that military prowess. I'm not saying this is it, okay? But this is something to, to just kind of start putting some indices in your brain to kind of put things together. Um, in the days of Ronald Reagan, we began to work on uh, a particular system. St a Star Wars system, okay? What is it? A missile defense system. Now, we're going to have this big shield in the sky, right? And, and think about it. As we've gone through all the years, the idea is that this shield is going to do what? This fortress, if you would, is going to do what? It's going to protect us. And so we've, 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 we've tested it so that we've tried to have missiles coming from Asia and, and to see whether we're going to be able to, to, to use this missile defense system and, and shoot things out of the sky before they ever get to us. Is that it? Probably not. Is it a forerunner of it? Potentially. Okay? I'm just saying... You know, at those days when these prophecies were being given, okay, they didn't have a clue of having satellites in the sky. Does that make sense? And having this, this, this missile defense system and, and actually having missiles, you know, projectiles that were going to travel beyond just the catapult, but that are going to travel from one continent to another continent, these ICBMs going on. So, so you have to kind of bring it into your modern day today. What would this god of fortresses be? I don't know. But that is clearly one of those things where we could start to look at a modern-day fortress, not necessarily a, a castle. Computer firewalls. Good. Yeah, awesome. That's exactly right, especially with the Internet now. You know? And uh, you know what it means just every time you do a, a greater encryption, it just means what? You just give those ones who want to break the encryption a, 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 a bigger logical puzzle to solve. So... So then we have the, the end of the anti king now coming in, in beginning verse 40. It says that at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come up against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and, sh and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall be escaped from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon, Ammon he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and from the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Isn't that interesting, huh? So, what do we know about this guy? Well, he shall respond to the king 
to the attack of the king of the south with great fury and force. Somewhere along the line, a king of the south is going to rise up against this guy. Okay? Now, who would it potentially be? Will it be an Egyptian power at this point? I don't know. It could wind up being a Muslim force that comes up from the south. That would be an interesting thought process, and as you see those things. I don't know. You know, we kind of seek to interpret things based upon our what? Our current affairs, okay? And so if I was to push into a box to say, well, who is it? I would probably opt for that, that potentially the Muslim, um, the Muslim faithful haven't fully given over to this messianic guy, right? Because he's um, not giving credence to who? Allah. Isn't it amazing that, you know, those who have a little credence to Christ easily give it up. But those who are faithful to Allah will die for it. Just remember that, okay? So anyway, so there's an attack upon him, and so he comes back and he goes with great fury and force to come back against him. And then we're told that after that, he shall enter the glorious land and overthrow various countries. Now, the glorious land, as we understand it, is what? Not it's, it's Israel. Now, the question that you have to ask yourself is what's Israel? What's Israel? Where, where does Israel extend from? The Euphrates. Uh, Palestine. We say Palestine, but that's only because what was given to them during the, uh, the, the United Nations. But what did God say ultimately was the land? From the Euphrates down to the Brook of Egypt. That's exactly right. So, what's a part of the glorious land? Well, Ammon is. Jordan, Jordan, that's Jordan. Okay? Moab is. Edom is. That's down into Saudi Arabia and the Yemen and all that other stuff. Okay? That's all considered part of the glorious land. And we're told that, um, that when he goes in, he's going to throw, overthrow these nations, but he's not going to destroy them. The only one who's really going to be destroyed is who? Egypt. Okay? That Egypt's going to suffer. Um, and maybe because that the, um, the, the place that the battle began or came out of was Egypt. And so, you know, so when he quelches, squashes all this, maybe he doesn't necessarily wipe out these other countries so much. You know, he kind of just slaps their hands a little bit. But then he really beats up on Egypt. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, again, this is prophecy. I'll let you know in a thousand years from now. Um, um, third, we're told that he shall go out with great fury to destroy many upon the troublesome news from the east and the north. So something's going to happen. He's going to get news that somebody else is causing a disturbance, right? Now, at this point, you see something happening from the south. Now you hear troublesome news from the north and the east going on. What do you begin to understand about this guy's um, power? It's starting to wane. People are starting to do what? They're starting to see through this guy. That's exactly right, okay? And so people are starting to rebel, okay? And so we're told then he shall plant the tent of his palace between the seas of Jerusalem. He'll come to his end, and what? Nobody comes to help him. That usually, when you see that nobody came to help you, that usually means what? You had no real friends. Real friends. You had a lot of friends, probably, but you had no real friends, okay? So that was the end. Now, the epilogue is in chapter 12, and uh, I don't think we're going to get to chapter 9 today. Um... I was hoping to get to chapter 9, but I think we're going to have to save that until um, after Easter, after Resurrection Day. In chapter 12, we read the epilogue to this whole thing. 
It says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who was found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, this is all part of the same story. This is all part of the time of the end. And so first we read about, in verse 1, the deliverance of the people. And there is going to be this great trouble that's going to come on, on the people, such as never was since there was a nation. But God's going to send Michael down <clears throat> to protect who? Who does it say? <coughs> your people. Who is your people? Israel. He's talking to Daniel. Remember that next week, uh, next week, um, Either next week, I may change, change things a little bit. Maybe we'll go to Daniel 9 next week, just so we keep everything in context. Anyways, um, and when we go through the 70 weeks, because it's to your people. And so this is an important statement, you know. So this trouble is going to come upon Israel, okay. There's going to be trouble in Israel, but there's going to be a deliverance that comes from God. God's going to bring a deliverance, and it's come through Michael. Secondly, we're told that there's going to be the resurrection of the dead. And in this resurrection of the dead, some are going to be raised to everlasting life, and some are going to be raised to everlasting shame and contempt. Many people say that in the Old Testament never talks about um, everlasting life. And the Old Testament never talks about hell. They only talk about just Sheol. Daniel was very clear about what God, what God says that there is. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And everybody, look at this. Everybody's going to have what? Everlasting life. Everybody's going to live, not everlasting life, but they're going to have everlasting existence. And so everybody here, everybody in the world, is going to live forever. The question is, where? That's exactly right. And so I ask you, as we're, I'm going to ask you in just a moment again in, in the conclusion, where are you going to spend it? Where are you going to spend it? And we're told that there's going to be the sealing of the book in verse 4a and then 9 and 10 where we read, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And then drop down to verse 9 where the messenger says to him, he says, And go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And so we're told of the sealing of the book, the words of the book are closed until the time of the end. We're told that at, at that time, at the time of the end, the pure will be re refined and the wicked will do evil. So when, the, when this, this book is going to be sealed until the end time, and until that time, when that end time comes, and the book is start to be opened up. Now understand, it's closed until the time of the end, which tells you what? What's going to happen at the time of the end? It's going to be opened. Well, what does that mean? Well, it drops down to here. The wicked will not understand, but what? The wise will understand. Somehow, as we get into these end times, God is going to allow our spiritual eyes to start to be opened up to things that we didn't understand before. That we're going to be able to compare spiritual things with spiritual things more than we did before. 
I, I, don't, I can't explain to you why that is, how that will be, other than the fact that I believe it's to be true, and that to whom much is given, much is required, and that God is the one who is the giver of wisdom and understanding and knowledge, and that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of all those things. And so I believe it will be those, there will be individuals during those days, whether we're in those days or not in those days, I don't know at this very moment, who will give themselves over to the fear of the Lord, who will, who will seek, be seeking God, His kingdom and His righteousness, and then God will use them as modern day prophets, not foretelling, not foretelling God's word more, but foretelling, or foretelling it, in other words, declaring what He's already declared. I think it's, I find it amazing right now how many a uh, series of messages are being done upon uh, prophecy around the, the, the globe. It's amazing. I keep hearing from people saying, you know what, my pastor started preaching on that this year. I don't know what God's raising up right now. I don't know why God's doing it. But I believe that when the time of the end comes, that God will be true. And we're told that during that time as well, the pure are going to be what? What does that mean? That there's going to be refined by fire. That's exactly right. There's going to be trials and tribulation that's going to occur to who? To the saints. To the pure. And the wicked's going to do what? Evil. Remember that when we get to Jesus' statements as well. We're told about some indicators of the end in verse 4b. We already read it. It says, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge will abound, or knowledge will increase. I think it's amazing that in our day and age, again, I'm not saying that today's the end time, but I do think that we're being prepared for it. I do think that we are in the beginning stages of it, for sure. I think it's interesting that I can go right after the service today. I could have a, a, a flight in Atlanta or in, in Columbia. And I could, I mean, I could even go to Augusta. And I could get on a plane. And by the time, before I go to bed tonight, I could go to bed halfway around the world. Isn't that amazing? You can spend just a short period of time and get wherever and today we have many people doing that. They're running what? To and fro. All over the place. I mean, talking about life being very what? Hectic and very busy. Okay? We came down south and really enjoyed the what? Slower pace. And I feel like I'm up north again. <laughs> it's like, when did the north come down? And, uh, but we're there. Knowledge shall what? Abound. Knowledge shall increase. Can I say internet? It's a phenomenal toll. Listen, I, I laugh about this, but but I my undergraduate work is computer science and mathematics. Computer science. And I went to the number three school in the country in computer science. Okay, there was Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Stanford, and then Carnegie Mellon University. And so when I went there, we were getting screens for the very first time when I was a junior. Now, I know some of you guys think that that must mean that I went to college 50 years ago. 30 is close. 30 is close. Actually, just 20-something. That was 1982. We're talking 25 years ago. 27, I know. I can do math. Okay? But just think 25 years. In about 25 years, how much the Internet has gone. Internet wasn't even there. We had, a, we had stuff called LibNet, which was a library network. We had things called ARPANET. Okay? What's that? 
Well, there was a DARPA. There was also a DARPA. Anyways, at that time, there was a couple different networks that people were trying to do. And there were schools, um, Carnegie Mellon being one of the chief ones, that brought all of those together to make the Internet. It was not Al Gore. And uh, <laughs> I hate to dispel that. And, um, but anyways, but then the Internet was made, and it brought all these different networks together so that information could begin to be shared across all these architectures, different architectures. I blew somebody away. I think it was George. I think we were t t uh, talking to George about when I was talking about having the, the uh, all the, last week, it was the last week, when I was talking about how the messages, what I do with the messages, like today I'll go home, you know, I'll, I'll put the, the message from the, the voice recorder onto my laptop, I'll go home, I'll convert it, and I'll put the web pages on the internet. But our internet, all our internet pages are where? In Australia. So from my house, <coughs> from my house, in the corner of my dining room, <coughs> I send, in a, in a moment, in a clinkling of an eye, all this information to Australia. And we could be on the phone together, and you could say, Bob, the link doesn't work. And I could say, well, hold on just a moment. Oh, here it is. Let me change this line of code. Okay, good. Uh, okay, give me a moment. Okay, it's there. Track it now. Oh, good, thanks. It's great. And in just those three minutes while we're talking on the phone, you know, we could be sending information to Australia from my computer to, to Australia and from your from Australia back to your computer while we're talking on a phone in real time. Isn't that mind-boggling? I mean, you could call somebody around the world. I have Skype on my computer. Skype, do you? It's audio-visual. If you don't have it, it's a fun thing. And so we talk to missionaries in Germany. We can see them. You know, and we can talk to them. And it's real time. Knowledge shall increase. I don't know if, if, God, if Christ should tarry. What this is going to look like 25 years from now? Isn't it an amazing thing to think about? We're told about the timing of the end. And at the timing of the end, we're told about the time of the abomination, the desolation, and, and, and that kind of stuff. We're told it's going to be for a time, times, and half a time. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week when we come to the 70 weeks. But a time is a year, and so times is plural, that's two years, and a half a time is a half a year. So you have a time, a times, and a half a time, that's three and a half years. Okay? So just suffice it to say for that, and then we're told about an, an additional period of time that's beyond that, that many people have declared probably is a time of the judgment, a time of the, the new administration taking hold. I don't know exactly what all it's going to be, um, but it's probably there. Now, all this is to say, and I'm going to fly through all this stuff here, okay? So pretend you don't see this, because you'll see it next week. Okay. What is your view of biblical prophecy? Now, coming into all this, okay, over the last couple weeks, what would you have said? How, I mean, did you see this stuff is just, like we said last week, that it was just coincidental or actual? Do you believe that these events will actually happen as the Bible foretells? If you do, what effects does it have upon your life? What effects should it have upon your life? Is your name written in the book? Will you be resurrected to everlasting life? Or to everlasting shame and contempt. Let's, let's close today singing a new name written down in glory. Okay? That's 521. I trust that everybody's here's name is written down in the book already. But if it's not, if it's not, understand that just as God declared all that intricate detail of the Greek Empire, so what he declared for the future is going to happen, as well as the fact that everybody will be resurrected. 
some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting shame and contempt. 521, a new name in glory.